You're listening to The Diplomats Podcast on Asian geopolitics. As always, I'm your host, Ankit Panda, broadcasting from Washington, D.C. And I am your co-host, Katie Putz, coming to you from Washington, D.C. as well. How are you doing, Ankit? Good. Enjoying this uh, beautiful turn of fall weather here in Washington, Katie. How are you? I'm doing, doing pretty good. Uh, I'm going to warn warn listeners, we've got some work going on in the back, so if you hear saws, I'm so sorry. <laughs> <laughs> we'll try to We'll try to hopefully uh, avoid that. Um, but some things are just out of our control. But uh, Katie, it's been a while since we've um, looked at Central Asia uh, on the podcast. So I think we have a pretty good peg uh, with the fact that, you know, it is October 13th when we're recording uh, the Commonwealth of Independent States, um, the, the group of states comprising uh, former Soviet states, uh, including the Central Asian states, has just met for a summit uh, in Kyrgyzstan. Um, and there's a lot to talk about here, I think, generally looking at uh, regional geopolitics. Uh, it's, it's Russian President Vladimir Putin's first overseas trip since the International Criminal Court issued an arrest warrant for him. So walk us through a little bit about what's happened uh, at the summit and, and what our listeners need to know. So, yes, the, the Commonwealth of Independent States, the CIS, uh, is a... It's sort of a successor to the Soviet Union when the Soviet Union was collapsing. Uh, an agreement was signed between Belarus, Russia, and Ukraine, which set, effectively declared the USSR over. This is the Belasheva Accords, uh, signed in early December of 1991, and at the same time sort of proclaimed the CIS as sort of the inheritor of this. Uh, ultimately, many but not all of the former Soviet republics joined in some fashion, uh, these included Armenia, Azerbaijan, Belarus, Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, Moldova, Russia, Tajikistan, Turkmenistan, Ukraine, and Uzbekistan all signed the initial agreements. Uh, by the time their charter was signed in 1993, uh, it was clear that Lithuania, Latvia, and Estonia were never going to join. Uh, and ultimately, Ukraine didn't sign the uh, charter, had a disagreement about who was the actual successor state to the USSR. This is an organization that is essentially based in the ashes of the Soviet Union. And over the ensuing three decades, a number of things have happened. Uh, for example, Georgia, which had joined in 1993, left in 2009 after the uh, the um, uh, South Ossetia, Abkhazia breakaway regions, uh, Russia supported them. Georgia didn't want to let them go, uh, which is essentially foreshadowing for what happened in Ukraine in 2014 and then 20, uh, 2022. All of this to say is this body is so intricately tied to the former Soviet Union that it, it's really hard to take it out of that, that context. Uh, what happened at this summit is uh, Armenia didn't come and neither did Moldova. Moldova is actively in the process of leaving the CIS, uh, mm -hmm. effectively over uh, the war in Ukraine. Armenia has its own sort of issues with Russia, mostly vis-a-vis -vis Azerbaijan, which did come to the summit. Um, but I think... The fact that it happened in Kyrgyzstan, which was this year's host, uh, next year's chair chair is Russia, so it's sort of shifting to Russia, and a lot of the focus was on Russia and the Russian language. Uh, Putin had some interesting things to say, as he always does. Um, but I, I think it's just sort of this moment where the sort of spaces in the the countries of the former Soviet Union are still trying to figure out like what it is that they mean to each other, and the the sort of diminishment of the CIS, I think, is a product of that. Yeah. So this. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that is kind of the big takeaway I have here is that the CIS is slowly but surely 
disintegrating in relevance. I mean, I mean, tell us a little bit more about what Putin had to say, the relation that these states have to Russia, which I know, you know, there's been a lot of kind of interesting moments in the last 18 months to two years, uh, especially in the aftermath of the Ukraine war. So what are your uh, takeaways there with regard to how the CIS views Russia in the current environment or the other CIS states rather view Russia? Yeah, so it's it's kind of interesting, especially because Russia is the next chair. And so like all international sort of or groupings of this kind, whoever the next chair is gets a lot of focus in sort of the, the major summit. So th- I think that was going to happen anyway. But there is this heightened focus on Russia um, in Putin. And like I said, had some interesting things to say. Probably the, the one that I've seen reported the most was um, he essentially said, yeah, it's important to work together with like-minded people from other regions of the world, with the countries of the so-called global majority, the global South, whose views are very close to us. I think that was a very clear reaching out uh, to countries that are not necessarily in the quote-unquote Western camp, but maybe aren't necessarily in the CIS. They're not former Soviet states. Uh, I think he's trying to position the CIS as uh, something in addition to all of these other things that Russia has going on. And some of the ones that I, I think that jump to mind are, you know, the Eurasian Economic Union, the CSTO, the SCO. Actually, this the SCO secretary general was a guest at this summit. Hmm. So it, there is this sort of, I think, a cynic and a bit of a, if you have a little conspiratorial mind, you might say this is this all sort of ropes into this idea that Putin is trying to reconstruct the USSR as best he can. I don't know if I would go that far, but it certainly is trying to continue to place Russia at the center of a network of countries that essentially say, like, we have allies, we have partners, uh, all these countries want to hang out with us. It's also important to note that in 2024, Russia's chairing BRICS as well. And he mentioned sort of bringing these two groupings together. I have no idea what that would actually look like in practice. But on a narrative level, it is again, Putin and Russia trying to demonstrate its sort of centrality uh, at a time when if you're coming at it from a Western perspective, uh, Russia is um, very much on the periphery of sort of proper uh, diplomatic society these days. Um, That's not that's not the view Moscow is trying to push. Well, this is actually a good segue into what I wanted to ask you about next, which is, um, of course, you know, the Central Asian states value their sovereignty and independence, and they've been pursuing um, an independent foreign policy by by holding a bunch of summits with the U.S., China, the European Union. Uh, when I was in Berlin, I actually got held up by Kazakh President Tokayev's motorcade because uh, <laughs> all the Central Asian leaders were in Germany. Uh, and so, you know, Maybe to look back a little bit um, to uh, what's happened in this past year. I know, you know, we're kind of lumping Central Asian countries all together here, Katie, and that's probably unfair to do. But tell us a little bit about, I mean, these these summits that have happened. What are Central Asia's broader or what are the priorities that the other Central Asian states are pursuing right now, despite these Russian attempts to kind of keep the region uh, firmly in in Moscow's um, near abroad, so to speak, in terms of its sphere of influence and its orbit. How are the Central Asian states coping by reaching out to other countries? Uh, I, I can tell you've talked to me long enough about Central Asia that you, you threw that in. All the Central Asian countries do have their own sort of foreign yeah. policy bents, uh, but we are going to talk about them as, as a region uh, for for simplicity, under- but, but yeah. for simplicity's sake and for understandable reasons, they have when it comes to external relations, they have very similar sets of interests and very similar ways of going about things. Uh, as you noted, you know, this year, I think 
I mean, maybe somebody can can tell me I'm wrong, but I'm pretty certain this is the most number of meetings that all five Central Asian leaders have had with various other world leaders sort of in this steady drumbeat fashion. In May, uh, all five were in Xi'an for a summit with Xi Jinping. In June, they came back to Cholpanata, which is a, a very uh, nice city in, in Kyrgyzstan to meet with the European Council President Charles Michel. Uh, U.S. President Joe, Joe Biden hosted them in September in New York, and then German Chancellor Olaf Scholz met with them in September in Berlin after the New York meetings. And so that sort of steady clip, I think, points at this effort on the part of Central Asian countries to kind of remind all of these other powers that have interests and want things from Central Asia that they have their own thing going on. They will entertain all callers. I think this is a thing that you know, Central Asia often gets sort of talked about as if Russia or Ch increasingly China can just kind of push them around and tell them what to do. And that's not really how it's ever worked and certainly not how it works. Uh, but with these diplomatic engagements, you're sort of seeing, I think, sort of a recalibration on the way that external powers like the United States, like the EU, sort of envision Central Asia because like it or not, Central Asia is attached to almost every major geopolitical issue of the day. If it involves Russia, Central Asia is a part of that conversation. If it involves China, Central Asia is a part of that conversation. And so since those are sort of the two major sources of, I would say, sort of geopolitical tension, Central Asia ends up being part of that conversation. Mm -hmm. um, and I think it fits in sort of all of the Central Asian countries to certain degrees have what we like to call multi-vector foreign policies. It is their policy to talk to everybody and to try to, to work with everybody. Uh, they have specific things that they want. Um, and they, they're certainly, this enables them to get away, I would say, with certain, uh, in particular, human rights violations that uh, are not great and are not good for the Central Asian peoples. Uh, but the, the calculus between sort of the geopolitical issues, the security issues, the economic issues, and then you add the human rights issues. And when those things all get shaken out, I think the human rights stuff falls to the bottom um, and there's sort of a pragmatism uh, that takes over. Yeah. Can I ask you a little bit more specifically about Biden's meeting with the leaders? Because I know in the past you've expressed um, frustrations, let's say, about how the United States talks about Central Asia, thinks about Central Asia as part of uh, America's broader strategy for Asia. And and of course, there's been you know two major changes. Uh, the obvious one, of course, being Russia's war against Ukraine, but also um, the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan. Uh, and so I'm wondering how those two events have affected how Washington under the Biden administration is thinking about Central Asia. Do you still see continuity more broadly? Or are you starting to see the indicators that the United States is beginning to give some serious thought to engaging Central Asia on its own terms uh, in, in this new world that we live in with uh, you know Russia's war against Ukraine in particular? I mean, I think there I think there's broadly continuity still, um, you know, towards the during the sort of latter half of the Trump administration, there was a new Central Asia strategy. There hasn't been a new one produced yet. And the the the, the main features of that strategy were these ideas of territorial integrity and sovereignty and sort of upholding um, Central Asia's ability to be independent uh, and an effort on the U.S. part to sort of envision a non-Afghanistan-centric Central Asia foreign policy. And then the war in Afghanistan ends in the way that it does. And then you have the war in Ukraine, which I think re 
focused attention on Central Asia in, in honestly a way that was maybe good for U.S. foreign policy in Central Asia, because those who deal with Central Asia policy in the State Department, certainly, and around the U.S. government, had another thing to say, like, this is why you should care. Because I think it's a, it's, a, it's a big struggle for pretty much any uh, neglected region in Washington to sort of jockey for position and jockey for time and jockey for money. And I think the war in Ukraine adds to that that pitch, uh, you know, when you go into the budget office and, say, and going to Congress and saying, like, we need funds to do X, Y and Z in Central Asia, you have to be able to say, like, this is why Central Asia matters. Uh, war in Ukraine kind of gives gives that some some added emphasis. And so I think there is that attempt in Washington to engage with Central Asia in a longer term fashion that is not necessarily just about um, what the U.S. can get out of Central Asia, but what the U.S. can give to Central Asia and what the U.S. provides. Um, and that's obviously not as much funds as China, for example, and no American diplomat would tell you that. But there are things that Central Asians want out of the United States. One of the things I remember from when I spoke to the U.S. ambassador in Bishkek this summer, he told me, you know, I can't get enough English language programs. Like that's all they want and they want more of it and there's high demand for that. So these sort of softer things, I think, don't get a lot of attention. They're not very sexy on the geopolitical conversation. But the fact is, across Central Asia, those are the sort of things that are in demand. And that says something about the value of the U.S. in the region. Um, it's not as, as like high profile as development projects. It's not as high profile as security cooperation. But it says something about where those connections can be made. And I think there is an effort in Washington to to follow through with that. Uh, but again, Central Asia is extremely far. Uh, Central Asia is not always a top priority. And, and I think when you do have to make those lists of priorities, it doesn't always come, come in the top 10. Um, certainly in the last year, there's been a, a renewed interest in all of these meetings highlight that. The question is, where is that cooperation going to go next? So the there are several interesting features um, and things to come out of uh, Biden's summit with the Central Asian presidents. Um, one that I wasn't expecting, but also makes perfect sense in sort of the U.S. Ge geopolitical positioning was a discussion of critical minerals and Central Asia's role in, in that whole race, which is something I don't think comes to the top of almost anybody's mind when it comes to Central Asia, but then you think about it a little bit longer and maybe it should. Uh, and so that's something that I'm watching to see how that's operationalized and, and what is done, uh, because that is the the race for critical minerals and rare earth minerals and, and that, that whole sphere is really important to the U.S. government. And so if that important conversation can involve Central Asia, then it might get a little bit more of attention in that sphere. So keeping an eye on that. Yeah, that's really interesting. That that final set of observations you made on on uh, minerals in particular. I can imagine if the U.S. does produce a new Central Asia strategy, um, that it might be entirely subsidiary to the administration's broader China strategy. Which, of course, you know, officially, the administration says you know there's a separate strategy mm -hmm. for X region, Y region, the Indo-Pacific. That's not a China strategy, but uh, it's it's I think pretty difficult to deny that a lot of what the United States is doing around the world these days strategically is primarily driven by broader concerns about great power uh, confrontation with China. So I'll be, mm -hmm. I'll be interested to see uh, if we continue to see indicators that this is where the winds are going to blow in Washington on Central Asia in particular. Yeah, and, and, and I think that lends itself to essentially the Afghanistan criticism of U.S. Central Asia policy just sort of find and replace yep. China for Afghanistan. And maybe that's how this is always going to be. But it'll be I, I will also be interested to see how that 
you know, it is about China, but it's not about China. It, it, it depends on how good the U.S. is at convincing the states of Central Asia that this is about them and not about China, but also it is about China. Yeah, um, well, going by the U.S. record <laughs> in, let's say, Southeast Asia, uh, I think there's going to be uh, a lot more work to be done there. Yes, <laughs> I but, would agree. Yeah, well, well, Katie, it's it's always great to listen to you talk about Central Asia, I always learn a ton. So thanks for thanks for sharing your uh, impressions and expertise. Well, thank you for asking me, Ankit. Always a pleasure. Of course. Uh, and for listeners, um, make sure you subscribe to the podcast so you can keep up with future episodes. Uh, and if you have been a subscriber for a while, but you haven't yet left us a review, please do that. We really appreciate that feedback and it helps the show grow quite a bit. Uh, and finally, if you have um, any feedback or suggestions for content you'd like to see covered on the show, do reach out to either myself or Katie, and we're very happy to take that into consideration. Thanks a lot for listening, and we'll be back soon with more.